In one trendy Denver neighborhood, right next to a golf course, we find an old home almost hidden in plain sight. Unkept bushes cover the windows. Overgrown trees consume the front porch. He's been missing for more than a year. Inside, a 69-year-old man. He wouldn't look you in the eye. An urban hermit who permanently shut himself off from society. Basically disappeared. So removed from life and people, nobody knew he vanished. We do know police found a body. A year after his family searched his home. Well, there's no way he was there when we searched after him. unsanitary conditions hindered their investigation. A year after he was declared missing. We'll be out with the health department. The mystery of Chuck came to a bizarre end. No more after the coroner's report. Who's to blame? How does a man become... He was found in his own home. home. Lost at home. We're ready? Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, Commander, are you ready for this? I think so. Okay, cool. Um, first, I want to just begin in like how your agency handles missing persons cases in general. So you get a call from a family that an adult is missing. What do police do? People have different reporting options. They can have an officer come out to their house and make the report, or they can go to a police station and make the report, or they can call it in as well. Uh, once we receive that information, we review with the family, are there any extenuating circumstances behind this person missing? Is it just someone they've lost track of, or is there something unusual now? Finally, one of the key interviews I've been waiting for. Welcome to episode six of Blame Lost at Home. At this moment, I'm sitting with Commander Barb Archer of the Denver Police Department at police headquarters. She oversees the detectives that investigate major crimes in Denver, including the missing persons unit. We have been waiting weeks to hear from police who have repeatedly denied to answer any questions or give us any records in this case. They claim they couldn't release information because the case is still an open investigation. It wasn't until we started publishing this podcast did police agree to finally speak on the record. As I head into this interview, we still don't have police reports and we still don't know exactly what police did. We don't know what to expect. And in the questions we ask, we want to know kind of their lifestyle. Has there been uh, recent changes in their work habits or their social activities? Uh, where were they last seen? How can we help find them? Uh, and so who are police required to talk to after, you know, someone is declared missing or they are put into that missing persons database? So the detectives will reach out to the person who reported the person missing, and that could be a friend, it could be a family member, uh, can be your neighbor, somebody like that, um, to see what information they have. If we can identify family, uh, if it's not been family who's reported the person missing, we'll reach out to them. Uh, anybody that can help give us a little bit of information. A lot of adults who go missing kind of reappear, show back up in life, I guess, within three to seven days. So we maintain contact in that first week and ask that the families call us if they do hear back from the person. How many police officers work cases like that? So I have two detectives who are dedicated to investigating missing persons and runaway reports. And so I would imagine they're probably busy all the time. We average between runaway reports and missing persons over 2,500 cases a year. 2,500 cases so a year. So that's an average of four a day, and that includes juvenile runaways. So the law enforcement officers that are handling this case, these cases, while they're working on one case, they're getting calls on, the calls are probably just 
constantly coming. We in. get calls. You also get the daily reports that are generated by the uniformed police officers on the street. How often should police follow up on these kind of cases? We follow up on every one of them. Is that like a daily follow up? We have a, a protocol that uh, we establish. You know, the first day contact with the person who reported them missing, and then we follow up at three days, seven days, and then at different intervals depending on the activity that we're seeing. Part of our protocol includes entering the person into NCIC. Just a quick note on what NCIC is. It stands for the National Crime Information Center. It's a massive, gigantic database that every single police officer in the country has access to. They use it during traffic stops or if they encounter a suspect and need to check if they have a warrant. It's accessed by law enforcement millions of times a day. Chuck's name was put into this database as a missing person, so if an officer ever encountered Chuck, they would know his status. At what point would police enter a home? in a missing person's case. Officers get called sometimes to do a welfare check. Say a neighbor calls or a family member calls and say, this person's not answering their phone, the mail is stacking up outside their home. Uh, officers will go and see if they can determine, is the person inside the house? They'll talk to neighbors, have they seen them? Uh, is their car there if they have a vehicle? Are there signs of forced entry into the home or something that might indicate a crime? Or can we look in the window and see that there's a party down? You know, has somebody fallen or some uh, fell ill and not able to get back up? Are they conscious, unconscious? It's a high threshold for an officer to finally make the decision, hey, we gotta break down the door, or actually we gotta go inside the property. Right, we have to have pretty good reasons to just to damage someone's home to make entry. Regarding the Charles Ferry case right now, what's the status of that investigation right now? So the investigation is, will be carried as inactive. You know, as you know, the cause of death is undetermined. In layman's terms, what does inactive mean? that we're open to other information. Should somebody come forward and say, I was in that house and I killed him, then we would go back and open up the case. We've done this loads of times on this podcast, but I think it's really important. A quick rundown of the timeline. The very first time the police department was warned about Chuck was a call from a neighbor who asked for a welfare check. That was February 4th, 2017, a full 383 days before Chuck was finally found dead in his home. Dispatch records, we were able to get a calls for service report uh, on the property there, and there was a calls for service report that happened February 4th, 2017 for a welfare check. Do you know what happened during that call? Well, I believe that was called in by a neighbor who hadn't seen him in a while, and officers went out. Let me look at my notes real yeah, quick to... Uh, the information was they hadn't seen him in a while. Uh, the house is kind of run down. There's a broken window. The, the person who lived in the house is a, known to be a hoarder. Uh, she could see a large amount of trash. So when the officers get there, uh, they call the fire department to force open the door. And they're not able to get the doors open because they're blocked so much with trash and debris. When the fire department gets there, they can push it open further enough that an officer could kind of crawl inside and do a, a cursory look mm -hmm. through. Um, the situations were extremely bad. Did an officer enter the property on February 4th? Yes. They did. How deep did they go through the property? I don't have the exact details on that. Uh, the situations in the house, piles of debris, trash, three, four, five, six feet high. So just kind of a cursory look around. It was not apparent at that point that anybody was living in the house. And there were no signs of a, somebody down needing help. And so if you can go back to what you said, the fire department did show up and they tried getting the door open. Yeah, they so helped us push the door open and um, like I said, the, all points of egress were and ingress were piled up with trash. It was pretty bad. It was very bad. 
From what we can see in records, that call was one of six times police visited Chuck's property during that one year period before he was found dead. We asked for details on every single one of those calls. I don't want to bore you with what each call was about, but I'll summarize. They were mainly detectives visiting the home, but not going inside. It wasn't until October, eight months after that first 911 call, did police start working with the city agency that handles hoarding to try and find Chuck. That's when they finally decided to enter the home and really start looking around. But that ended up not working out. Did they have a protective equipment? They had a basic level of personal protective equipment. And as they got deeper into the house, realized that the situation was so bad that it was a biohazard, very unsafe. Uh, there were containers of human waste and discarded food and three and four feet piles of stuff in every room of the house. Um, no furniture is recognizable. No, the rooms weren't used for their intended purpose that they weren't going to find anything. They needed to back out, regroup, come back with a higher level of protective equipment, full respirators, um, and then begin the search again. Chuck's house was so hazardous, they couldn't figure out how to handle all the debris and the search. Part of the issue you heard there was a lack of protective equipment. By the time police and environmental health figured out a plan, more than four and a half months went by as Chuck's remains continued to sit in the house. Do you know what prompted the call then on February 22nd? Was it just the detective saying, all right, we finally got what we needed? It was the combination of all the resources being available to get together and go back with all their needed equipment. Okay, so that took four months, four and a half months, right? Right. Okay, that seems like a long time, or is that a short amount of time? It doesn't, doesn't change the outcome of this very unfortunate situation. You know, obviously sympathy to the family. You know, we have the benefit of hindsight now, and could we have gone back in sooner? Yes, again, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. Just takes a while sometimes for resources to align. Do you know if police ever took cadaver dogs into the home? Cadaver dogs are not our decision. Uh, the environmental health, we had some discussion with them about that. The situation would not have been safe for that dog handler nor the dog. The other thing that will indicate too is when we get calls on welfare checks looking for somebody who may be down or missing or hurt or dead, uh, one of the key indicators is a decomposition smell. And because of the conditions of this home, that was not the indicating factor that there was somebody inside in that state. The smell was overwhelming. You couldn't smell. You could not identify yeah. that smell. Let's go back to what Dr. Doberson said, our autopsy expert in episode four. He said bodies can mummify in Denver very quickly, within a few months. And when that happens, there isn't much of an odor of death as you'd expect. Whatever the case, it sounds like police and environmental health were overwhelmed and underprepared. Was the family ever formally interviewed? The, through the detectives, yes. Family feels like they were never formally interviewed in this case. I, I can't answer to what their perception is. I know that the detectives did have contact with the family. We talked to a handful of neighbors in the neighborhood, too. I think we've talked to pretty much nearly every neighbor that lives around Chuck. We couldn't find a neighbor that actually talked to police. Do you know what happened there? I don't. Yeah, we, we talked to one neighbor who says she was never talked to or approached by police. And then there were other neighbors that said that, you know, police never talked to us. But well, we did have the neighbor who called back uh, in February the first time to report. So there was contact with that neighbor. Do you know if Chuck's bank records were checked at all during this case? We had no indication to pursue that. Do you know at this point if Chuck did die in his house? Uh, by all appearances, yes. Do you guys suspect any foul play here? At this time, we don't, and that's based on the information from the autopsy report that there were no obvious signs of trauma to the skeletal remains. Uh, it's always a possibility. 
And now is the point in the interview where I had to ask about Mystery Mike. He's the guy who knocked on Brian Frary's door announcing his father is either missing or dead. I'm positive the man who showed up to Brian's door is a guy named Mike Galusha, who has an extensive criminal record. So how do I know this? Brian gave me a phone number Mike gave him that night. I used various public databases and traced that number to a Michael Raymond Galusha who has tons of arrests on his record for things like drugs and stalking. I pulled some of those criminal cases. The phone number Brian gave me matched Mike's contact information in his court files. I pulled Mike's mugshot and showed Brian, who told me he's sure that was the guy who knocked on his door. This Mike guy is definitely not a suspect in Chuck's death, and there's no reason to suspect foul play in this case. But you'd think police would want to talk to this guy. Brian says he told police about Mike long ago when they first started looking for Chuck. Um, there was a man, uh, we believe his name is Mike Galusha, who has an extensive criminal history. Uh, he has an active warrant, by the way. Uh, this guy went to one of Chuck's son's house uh, and apparently said, hey, I think your dad is either missing or dead. Do you know if police ever tried to track down this Mike guy? I don't have that information. I've not heard that name. Ryan, one of uh, Chuck's sons, told us that this Mike guy knocked on his door, and that would have been on February 13th, and that was the thing that prompted them to say, oh, I guess dad's missing. Uh, let's go down there and look for him. And then that's when they decided to call police. Do you know if they, you don't know if the detective ever tried talking to this Mike guy? I don't know that, no. Okay. He has an active warrant. We tried finding him, but we couldn't find him. He knows something or... And, and we'll be glad to follow up with him and see what he has to say. Could someone could have killed Chuck at this point? It's entirely possible. I'm going to stress here again, Mike is not a suspect, and you heard Commander Archer say earlier this case will be categorized as inactive. The fact police are not ruling out any foul play and the fact Mike may know something, it's possible Chuck maybe didn't die of natural causes as the medical examiner guessed. But I wonder if his remains were found earlier, maybe police would have more clues on exactly how Chuck died. It will likely always be a mystery. Um, Chuck's kids feel that they were often left in the dark in this case. Can you talk about that? Well, I'm sorry that they have that experience. Um, our goal is to make contact with them. Um, could we have done a better job reaching out? It sounds like maybe we could have. Can you talk about other police activity at the house? There was a trespasser that was recently arrested there. That was someone who was using the large commercial dumpster uh, for their own use. How, how did your agency finally work with environmental health? You said it took you know about four months for all these resources to come together. So this was more of how can we help the family with the situation? Uh, cleaning up homes is not the police department's responsibility. It's a combined effort of a lot of city agencies and environmental health is the key agency for that. Um, they have the resources to help address the problem. They're the ones who placarded the home as being unsafe. We share information when we're in these situations. You know, sometimes police officers respond to a, a medical call and come across these situations. So we share that information to get the resources to address the problem. This had the additional component of Mr. Frary being missing. So how does a man go missing only to be found in his house a year later? He's isolated from his family. No regular contact with anybody. They had not heard from him in almost a year. Again, the conditions of the home. When you opened the door and looked in, there wasn't as if we saw somebody laying on a couch or on top of this heap of trash or anything like that. Yeah. From the surfaces that were in that room, and here's a picture of it, 
Yeah, that looks really bad. Commander Archer pulled out a photo of inside Chuck's living room. In episode five, I described what the inside of his home looked like after Susan Frary, Chuck's daughter, showed me photos. This photo came from Environmental Health, snapped by inspectors about 30 minutes before they found Chuck's body. It shows his living room just full of trash, nearly up to the ceiling. As I've said before, this case could be one of Denver's worst hoarding cases on record. Looking at the photo, I could see why the city may have been overwhelmed with what to do. There's nobody laying on top of something. Do you know how long it took for him to be found? So they began their foraging into the house and just started making a path, working their way through. And as they worked through there, somewhere towards the middle of the room, they noticed a kind of a, a lower spot in the pile and looked down and they saw a bone, a human bone. And I believe that was within the first hour that they were on scene. No path. They just picked yeah. a path and were fortunate to that, come that, across that it. That looks pretty bad to me. I mean, I've covered hoarding cases before and that looks, I mean, that's almost touching the ceiling. There's this pile of debris. I mean, I could see why it took a while to find it. In my 28 years in law enforcement, I've seen some hoarding and this is by far the most extreme I've seen. Uh, there's a lot of scales of hoarding. There's documentation out there. We were fortunate that that was the area that they started working in and they looked yeah. down and saw it. Otherwise, it would have been as they were cleaning, extracting the debris out of the house, breaking through it and hoping to- Have you ever seen a case like this where a hoarder does disappear then like months or even a year later, they're found dead? I don't have any personal experience with that. I would assume a case like this is pretty uncommon. This is uh, a first in my career. Sometimes you'll have situations like this and the person doesn't live there. Did police do everything they could to find Chuck? I believe we did, based on the information that we had. You know, I don't think that anything we could have done differently would have changed the outcome. Again, just our sympathy to the family. I mean, these are unfortunate situations are hard for everybody, especially when relationships are estranged. Um, this is by far one of the most extreme situations I've ever seen. Is there anything in hindsight that your department could have done better? We can always do something better. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like we could have uh, reached out to more neighbors. Again, I don't know that we'd have changed the outcome, and we will definitely look into following up with that male who contacted one of the sons. How, how do you think this all happened? Like where, you know, a guy died in his house, uh, or he was declared missing and it took a whole year. I mean, it sounds like a perfect storm of just being forgotten about. I don't know that it's forgotten about. It's somebody who lives a very isolated, maybe a reclusive lifestyle. And uh, there are neighbors, people in the area, typically who will call us and bring these situations to the forefront and say, hey, something's not right here. I haven't seen this person or the accumulation of trash and debris on the property is of concern. It's out of the norm for the neighborhood. Uh, things that help get us there. The, the situations of this are so unusual. Like I said, you don't look in there and see somebody laying there. How do we know if he is or isn't in there? We don't have any indication of foul play at that point, other than that one statement from uh, the mail that you talked about. We followed kind of that information. There wasn't anything suspicious other than he wasn't located. Uh, based on the autopsy report, there's no identified date of death because of the condition of the body when it was found, the skeletal remains. Uh, the information that we had in February based on the location and him being under several feet of debris, chances are he was dead at the time that he was initially reported missing. I can't say that for sure. It's clear from the photo held up by Commander Archer, the conditions in Chuck's house were hard to dig through. A bit of a disclaimer here. She gets descriptive about how they found his remains and why he was found under the debris. 
you can see that this is a field of debris that's four or five feet, six feet high. I mean, we're almost yeah. within a couple feet of the ceiling in some areas. As they're working their way through, they're creating a path. They're in their moving of that, they find a, a lower spot mm -hmm. and that's when they see a bone. There was debris on top of him and around him, uh, part of it because there was rodent infestation in the home. And then there's also an indication they do what they call nesting. And it's just that is kind of wallow out a low place. And if you've ever dug a hole in loose dirt, when you do that, things kind of gather Fall around you. And so if he had laid down to go to sleep and succumb to whatever natural cause of death or whatever cause of the death was, and then that thing with the movement of rodents and things like that. He was very covered. And to get into the home, uh, I think you were out at the scene, we had to go through this south-facing window. That was the shortest, easiest path. And that was like the front window facing, right. uh, uh, by what, Tennyson, I think. Yeah, it's on this, I believe it. Yeah. Pull that out and then it lay huge sheets, four by eight sheets of plywood on top of the debris to create a platform where they could then begin the excavation. Well, Commander, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your time out of your day and sharing us with information. You've got to wonder, if the city found the remains earlier, would they have a better chance of knowing the cause of death? Well, we found something after this interview with Commander Archer that made our jaws drop. It's in that first 911 call made by a neighbor 383 days before Chuck was found. And what that neighbor says in that call turned out to be so prophetic. You know, I'd hate for a year to go by and then someone discovers this guy is dead in his, died in his house. If you want to see the picture police showed us, check out our website, 9news.com blame. Stay tuned for more episodes of Blame Loss at Home. We'll play more of that original request for help that first 911 call.